Hello everybody and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell. In each episode we discuss the lives, deeds and motives of the worst criminals in history. Matt, um, welcome to A Glimpse of Hell. Thanks for joining me again today. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so Matt and I, as uh, some of our uh, already viewers or listeners out there would know we do another podcast where movies were good about classic movies and we've now uh, we both have a mutual interest in true crime which is uh, sometimes a good and bad thing and that's why we've started up a glimpse of hell so this is like a monthly podcast that we do about some of the worst people in humanity Matt um, we've just started setting everything up for a glimpse of hell did you want to just quickly tell the listeners what our social media is at the moment going forward yes so on uh, our different social media channels we have facebook instagram and twitter and you can see all the links below in our episode releases whatever channel you choose to get your podcast on whether it be youtube or apple podcasts it would be great if you could leave us a good review or a thumbs up or a five star rating whatever you feel like uh, should you not the consequences may be severe Yes, so... um on that for a week. Yeah. <laughs> that, you said that quite nicely, actually. And, um, yeah, we would love to have you join us. And there is obviously a big true crime community and a historical true crime community out there. And, and um, we just wanted to be a small, a small part of it because it is a natural interest for us. I've been interested in true crime since I was quite young, and um, Matt has too. So we'd often find when we were doing our you know, where movies were good podcasts that we'd end up discussing true crime in, you know, as, as part of our general conversation before and after we recorded the, that podcast. Some people so, it should have been in jail, but that's not yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's true. So our first episode was on Ted Bundy, where Matt has suggested one of the most terrible individuals ever to walk the face of the planet, and that is Adolf Eichmann who was one of the high-up Nazis in the Third Reich, was really one of Hitler's main henchmen, even if they didn't work together directly all the time. He went off and did some of the most terrible things ever known to man, and he was really one of the architects and definitely one of the big bureaucrats that pushed Hitler's final solution to rid the greater German area of the Jewish population. What made you want to discuss him today, Matt? Well, he's interesting because he brings into limelight how um, the pen can indeed be mightier than the sword, but it can be used for evil as much as good because Eichmann was this very high-up bureaucrat who was the main one of the main people responsible for making the Holocaust logistically possible. Yes. And when we think of war criminals and dictators, especially in Nazi Germany, we often think of the people at the top giving orders and the people at the ground uh, in uniform committing atrocities and atrocities and torturing. But Eichmann, as far as I know, never pulled a trigger or flicked a switch in a gas chamber. What he was evil for was even whether or not he did so with personal enthusiasm, although I'm sure he did. Uh, he was this high-up uh, functionary who organised everything from trains to uh, uh, the feed of uh, vic Holocaust victims into gas chambers. 
because like although it was the one of the most evil deeds ever committed by humanity the holocaust was to all intents and purposes a, a government policy and like all government policies it doesn't just start with the higher up official giving an order the bureaucrats in between have to make it happen that's right so really when I was sort of researching him and everybody, you, you know, you know that name Eichmann and a lot of politicians, especially in the States, they'll invoke his name, all these mini Eichmanns running around. And I never really understood what they were, what they were meaning. I'm like, why are they comparing this guy to a Nazi war criminal? But what they're actually saying is these bureaucrats that do all these dastardly deeds for the higher ups. So I kind of get that terminology now. That's why they use it. So it's not the literal it does no. realize the original, though, when they keep sort of um, using yes. it as a generic insult. Yeah, they do. I think, they've, especially over in the US, they've tri trivialized calling anybody a Nazi, and it's really quite sad. But let's, obviously, this podcast, we're concentrating on Eichmann. So, literally, with Hitler and the Third Reich, there are so many pieces to the puzzle. There are so many things that happened that got Hitler into power and all of these people with him, you know, Goebbels, you know, Himmler, some of these terrible people. Matt, what was the pronunciation of that horrible person at Auschwitz we were talking about? Joseph Menengel, is it? Joseph Mengele? Mengele. Sorry, I'm always saying I, I, I think that's. I think that's right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain, though. Yeah, the, um, when, I, um, when I studied German, they were more focused on the pronunciation of food and clothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, Mengele, that's, that's right. And all of these people, all the different people within the SS, all the different people within the Gestapo, all the different people within the Nazi party, all the people that ran the different concentrations and extermination camps, you could literally do hours on each one of them. But we're going to concentrate on Eichmann because of what Matt said, and that was that he was this bureaucrat that, you know, got involved with the Nazi party. He was actually living in um, Austria through some of his younger years. He was born in Germany and then went over to Austria. Then, of course, Austria was sort of annexed by Germany in the Anschluss. Is that, am I saying that one right, Matt? The Anschluss is when they took, yeah. yes. So, um, yes, and he was basically a Nazi sympathiser over there anyway, so he fit right into what Hitler's plans were. So if we go back to Germany 1933, that's when Chancellor Hitler arrived on the scene and basically the last nail was driven into the coffin of parliamentary democracy in Germany when Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of uh, Germany. The post was offered to him by the president, Paul von Hindenburg. Is that what the air balloon? That's who the air balloon was named after, right? Hindenburg. <laughs> uh, I assume so. I assume so, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so he had denied him the chancellorship originally. So I guess basically for Australians or English, I guess the chancellor was like their version of the prime minister and still is. And then they have the president who is sort of the you know, the, the, the head of the country, so to speak. Uh, Hitler was already the leader of the largest party in the Reichstag, so their parliament, where the Nazis had won almost 12 million votes in the elections in the previous November. Immediately upon his accession, he moved to consolidate his power. That evening, there was a massive torchlight procession of his followers through Berlin. 
Within days, he had given the government unlimited rights to ban all public meetings and control the press. And that's basically how it started with Hitler. There was after World War I, um, Germany was decimated. The Second Reich was decimated by what happened um, to their country after their loss in World War I. And it created the conditions in Germany for somebody like Hitler to tell all the workers everything they ever wanted to hear, except um, the reality was not the fantasy that he promised them. And uh, exterminating part of the population who weren't part of his version of the pure Aryan race for Germany, the Jewish, was um, was a goal. So he expanded on, you know, fascism from, um, it's a gentleman in Italy, Mussolini's fascism, and then added all these anti-Semitic parts to it and just was a brutal individual and he and his cohorts were some of the worst people in humanity so, Matt, what would you like to discuss about Eichmann first? So, he basically was a dropout of school. He was, uh, and then got involved in a bureaucracy with the, the Nazi party. Yeah, so he, like a lot of people of his generation, he didn't um, complete high school. He actually apparently went to the same one as Hitler did. Mm-hmm, that's right. So, yeah, he went for a few jobs in uh, around his uh, 20s. He had... Um, uh, a stint as a as a mechanic apprentice. I think he dropped out of that within a couple of years. I think where he got most of his professional success uh, uh, for what he did have uh, working for an oil company in Austria, and right. so this was at a time when uh, like cars were just becoming uh, really mainstream, and you needed to organize petrol stations and everything to to sponsor them, almost a yes. bit like now with electric cars. And so mm-hmm. that did give Eichmann a bit of a background knowledge in planning mass logistics and movement. Uh, now, he was too young for to be involved in World War One, but mm-hmm. he was that generation that would have been like very sort of awestruck by veterans of that uh, generation, just a few years older than him. And yes. so definitely he'd have been uh, interested, I think, in um, having that... Uh, uh, having that uh, own sort of legacy to do something big for himself. Now, and when we get towards uh, his involvement in the Nazi party, which I, I believe went uh, through um, uh, a link with a friend, he mm-hmm. was, he, for all his other professional faults, he followed orders to a T and was an expert at finding any inefficiency and making it and making an improvement. And, so he was this individual that was able to use that skill to any purpose, whether it be like a, if he, uh, who knows, if he got to another department, he may have had success, I don't know, organizing rail lines or something, but he just didn't regard um, uh, the killing of people as any, as any different. Yeah, so I was reading here that when he was a young man, I guess because of, how demoralized the German public was, especially the people that did fight in World War One, especially the men. Um, when the Nazi Party came along, the party platform included the dissolution of the Weimar Public Republic in Germany and the re- the rejection of the Treaty of Versailles, which the Treaty of Versailles was very well. They felt it was very unfair to Germany. It made them pay back a lot of money. Um, 
It was pretty much uh, from an old um, policy of warfare, of kind of trying to beat your opponent to the ground. Yes, yeah. Diplomatically, it was very stupid, because, uh, like, it wasn't even possible for a war-crippled nation to um, pay it forth, and getting into economics, because part of the uh, peace treaty that was enforced on Germany at the end of World War One was um, this huge reparations debt, and yeah. that was all often being done on credit, and it essentially it did mean that during the 20s, a huge amount of money was artificially circulating between America and Europe because of uh, one debt being paid to the other party and so on and so forth, and that that was one of the things that caused a real rapid crash after the market crash of 1929. That's kind of getting a bit into another topic. It's way too complicated. So um, what the Nazi party, in particular Hitler, from what I was reading, was able to do was blame uh, the circumstance, the current circumstances of the country in the 1920s, etc., after World War One, on anybody that was different or anybody that was from a different ethnic background, and hence the beginning of that um, massively radical anti-Semitism. So was, the Jews were blamed for basically anything. You know, if the business has failed, it's their problem. If, you know, things aren't going well in society and people aren't working together, it was their problem. And they were sort of the scapegoat, them and other people who were not ethnically pure and part of this um, Aryan race. Not that Hitler himself was ethnically pure from what I was reading. A lot of these people weren't. So, um, but they were the good boogeyman. They were the escape, you know, rather than take responsibility for what was happening in the country. It was easy to blame other people. So that appealed to people like Eichmann. It gave yeah. them a sense of superiority, I guess. Well, true, but what's perhaps even sadder is that um, the Nazis actually did not invent anti-Semitism, uh, like mm -hmm. the Jewish population has always been, like you say, that constant uh, boogeyman able to blame problems on from one decade or century to the next. And there's plenty of evidence in every other developed nation from America to Australia uh, mm -hmm. of anti-Semitic uh, sentiment. I mean, even around the time when a lot of people were escaping, escaping Nazi Germany, I believe a lot of um, them had uh, anti-Jewish taunts when they arrived in Australia too. Um, yes. Not to mention the pogroms in Russia. So really, um, uh, the whole world was anti-Semitic and in, uh, to some degree can still be yet in politically charged times. Uh, the difference is that the Nazis managed to carry out um, uh, uh, evil policy uh, a lot further than anyone else had managed to. Yeah, so it was sort of... It was really part and parcel of what they promised the German people. They also promised... So a strong central government, so that's one of the tenets of fascism, I guess, and what they called Liebenstrom, which is an increased living area for Germanic people. So going into perhaps other territories, Austria, um, and going in there and creating a larger space, a larger country, and that's essentially what the Third Reich was as well. It was the a larger empire for the Germanic people. Um, so they wanted to have this formation of like this national community which was based on this Aryan race and then cleansing out the people that didn't fit into that and primarily that was the Jews and the Slavic people as well and they would eventually be stripped of their citizenship and rights and Eichmann was heavily involved in all sides of it because he worked in the area that would see these people be stripped of everything they have and eventually 
trained out to different extermination and concentration camps and just that was the final solution. Um, although that wasn't the initial final solution. They were thinking of shipping, you know, the, uh, the Jewish people to Madagascar and some other places and when that seemed too much and Palestine as well um, and when that wasn't because they were fighting, not only were they doing this, but they were also fighting a war as well against several different fronts and none of those fronts were backing off. The Soviets weren't backing off, the British weren't backing off and the Americans got involved. So they had to forego that and that's when the extermination solution came in from what I was reading. Is that your understanding of it? Yeah, definitely. It wasn't until well into the war that um, the Holocaust, as we think of it, was really into its mainstay. And um, it was the craziness of the policy is that it was actually it was probably logistically harmful to um, their war cause as a whole. Uh, even though a lot of the um, atrocities and um, the death of the Holocaust occurred even before they got to the gas camps, because naturally, um, uh, if you're going, to, if you are so dismissive of their lives anyway, you're going to not care if um, they're starving and dying of thirst in rail carriages if you have a more important uh, cargo train of munitions to carry through. And yeah. so quite often um, carriages would be uh, kept on the wayside uh, to make room because, like, that's how trains work. You can only fit one at a time. Right. So, yeah, he was a big logistics man. So a few months after the Nazi seizure of power in Germany in 1933, as we discussed at the start of the podcast. Eichmann, as you stated, Matt, he was working for vacuum oil and he lost his job there because he was based in Austria. And then the Nazi party was banned in Austria around the same time. And then that led for him, obviously he's involved with the Nazi party. So he went back to Germany and then started his career with them that way. So he was in the SS. So um, for those out there, it's there's so many moving parts to what was happening in Germany at the time. But there was the SS, there was the Gestapo, which was sort of like the secret police of the SS, but he was in the SS. Uh, and then that's how he sort of started his, um, started his career. He wasn't really into the active military training part of it. Um, so he was a bureaucrat, essentially. He was in, working in the offices and he got his breaks by, as Matt said, being a great organiser and being able to do certain things, and that's how he was able to get up the chain of command. So he was very yeah, much a bureaucrat. The, like the major, as the major conference, which was as close as possible to an official on-paper ordering of the Holocaust, he was the main organiser of that. Um, because the key thing to remember with judging Nazi policies is that although Hitler and the... Uh, was morally responsible at the top. Um, he was lazy. He was mm -hmm. not a workaholic politician like many other people like Stalin and so forth. Uh, he could often barely be able to bother with the most basic paperwork. And and so it would not have been uh, bureaucratically possible for all the um, Nazi politicians policies to be organized directly from his, from him alone so there's a huge responsibility as far as planning goes um on the lower ranks yeah so he you know he was very much the office guy going around checking out all the different ways to get rid of the jews so there was resettlement so like you said there was palestine like british palestine at that 
point and he would travel to these places and assess what was going to sort of happen and in 1938 that's when the Anschluss happened so that's when Austria was integrated into the third into the third Reich um and he spent time out there discussing you know working in Vienna etc for the central agency for Jewish immigration so then you know that was his forte what are we going to do with the Jews how are we going to get rid of them are we going to deport them are we going to resettle them in? and then um as time went on, as we're getting into the late 1930s, 1940, by the time they had invaded Poland, the Nazi policy towards the Jews changed from voluntary immigration. So that's where they were trying to get them to go to different places like British Palestine, the Madagascar option perhaps, uh, then to forced deportation. And then after the forced deportation, we know what happened next and that's when the camps and um, the extermination sort of started from there. So he um, basically, he, was, he came up with a lot of different methods. It wasn't just him. There were a lot of other bureaucrats. But like you said, Hitler was sort of the main mouthpiece, rah, 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 this is what we we're going to do. But they needed people like Eichmann to actually physically research and carry out how they were going to do it. And that's the well, really... Like the government policy, whether you're yeah. a, a, because it would have been a huge logistical effort. It, it was because they had to figure out how... So Jews were concentrated into the, these famous ghettos that they lived in, like the Warsaw Ghetto, for example, in major cities with the expectation that eventually they would be transported further away from, um, from greater Germany. And then there were horrendous conditions in these ghettos anyway. There was overcrowding, there was poor sanitation, no food, and that was bringing their death rate up anyway. So they were kind of getting what they wanted from that. Um, and then after he researched, he and other people researched different ways and remembering like they're still battling the British, they're still battling the Soviets. And when things were starting to get too much by the early 40s, Hitler said, no, we're not going to resettle anyone. We're just going to get rid of them. And that's sort of how, that's sort of how all this sort of stuff started in terms of this branch of it. So, Matt, um, what, what are your feelings about him as a person? Like, he claimed in his trial, which we will discuss towards the end, that he was merely just carrying out orders from the Fuhrer, Hitler. Well, and yet there, say that for the witness box. Of course he would, yeah. But then there was too much information, especially when he was in Argentina, where he'd gone, where he was eventually captured, that he enjoyed exactly what he was doing and he knew exactly what he was doing and the deaths of these millions of people that he was involved with. So it's just, um, it's just unbelievable that these people justify it by saying they're working for the government and yet they knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't try to escape and go over to Britain or go anywhere else. So what are your feelings about Eichmann in terms of what he actually did, you know, it's the fact the fact that you can reduce people to uh, we see this time and time again in a different um, parts of history like if you get yourself in a particular position you reduce yourself to uh, people to numbers on a page that mean nothing to you um, uh, it's like looking at uh, court case transcripts uh, from the days of slavery and um, uh, 
the losses of lives are treated like um, uh, like a blight on cattle on a farm. Yes. Um, but Eichmann, um, he wasn't just like looking at paper. He even did things like uh, it was. I believe it was his idea to disguise gas some um, dispersion um, chambers as uh, shower places for more efficient yes. processing. Yes. It, he was, um, he's one of those rare um, examples of a middle person that becomes just as well known as, um, as those at the top. And one of the few positive benefits of him surviving was that his uh, major trial, which was uh, widely televised, it kind of um, brought the reality of um, the Holocaust outside of the um, heat of wartime propaganda to um, to the masses when you had large witnesses um, speaking out. Yeah, because they actually did have, it wasn't just um, written documents that they had from Eichmann, it was actually witnesses who did go to his trial and testify against him. And also, during the Nuremberg trials, Rudolf Hoss, who was the commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp or extermination camp, testified that Himmler had told Hoss to receive all operation instructions for the implementation of the final solution from Eichmann. So he was, you know, in a lot of sense, they do say that he's the architect of the final solution, but there were so many other people working with him in all the different concentration camps, in all the different extermination camps. You definitely couldn't um, uh, put it um, just on him. It was a large enterprise. It's the same way with um, uh, with Hitler. He wasn't a crazy person manipulating everyone. There were plenty of functioning individuals knowing well what they were doing. That's right. I always, um, you know, it's really oper- it operated like a cult on a massive scale. I always go back to Jim Jones and Jonestown, as we've sort of discussed. And Jim Jones was only allowed to do what he did at Jonestown because he had all these lieutenants who were enforcing all of these ridiculous policies that he had there. I mean, if everyone got together one day and just said, well, we're going to go to his cabin and overthrow him, then, you know, that would have happened quite easily. But because they had all of these people, you know, who took it upon themselves to execute all these ridiculous things that he wanted done... That's how they got to the situation where nearly a thousand people were killed on his orders. So um, it certainly was not him himself alone. You had all these, and I, I guess you see in these sorts of cults, and really that's what the Nazi Party, the Third Reich, Hitler, it was. It was this large, deathly operational cult. Is that these bureaucrats who aren't much of anything? They're not special outside anywhere. But within this organisation, all of a sudden they have power, they have status, and that feeds into this ego. And it's just amazing how many sick people were actually attracted to this, to Hitler and what he wanted to do, you know. And how quickly also the circumstances of war can change people. I mean, even look at um, a few centuries earlier, Maximilian Robespierre, who organized the guillotining um, during the height of the terror and the French Revolution. But up until that that period and the war against the Austrians and uh, other powers of Europe, he was um, a very enlightened solicitor, very much against death penalty. And yet by the time of um, achieving a position of power, feeling responsible somehow for a certain part of his... Uh, government it uh, meant less to him human life than um 
sort of um, by blood uh, terrorizing out any chance of sabotage. And right, so okay. I did his own turn, even though he was, um, uh, he was uh, obviously uh, took on a policy uh, and a agenda of um, uh, distinguishing himself as a as an executioner for the Holocaust. Um, he uh, he was able to only in a situation like a war like that could he um thrive in or such organizational capability. Yeah. So. I, yeah, it's just it's it's just amazing how they managed to draw all these people in. I mean, I suppose they were in sort of a military apparatus as well, so it's a little bit different to sort of a private cult, I guess you could say. So the Nuremberg. Uh, well, well, one had just occurred before. So, like, we're talking about a whole generation that was desensitized to violence. That's true. That's very true. Today, yes, that's when you're actually seeing it in real time and so many young men were decimated and they and it is if you go through that trauma you do become desensitized to it if you haven't already gone crazy so um, directly involved in world war one he grew up in the environment yes that's right so as we were talking about the nuremberg trial so that was the first big set of trials where some of these nazi war criminals were tried um the commandant of auschwitz Rudolf Hoss actually gave very damning evidence against Eichmann. So he wasn't just merely a pen pusher. He was very in- instrumental in executing Hitler's plans for the final solution to exterminate. So he had been involved in setting up the camps, getting the people out to the camps. And this had been done in stages. So as we discussed, he had, you know, investigated different ways from deporting the Jews to moving them out, to moving them to British Palestine and then when they were getting attacked from all sides, then the operation became just to exterminate and to get rid of them. And miraculously, our country will be healed. So much for that. So, Matt, he was able to escape. So, whereas Hitler and some of these other people were killed, although there are obviously conspiracy theories about that as well. A lot of the top brass actually committed suicide or were killed. He actually, you know, very squirrely squirmed away managed to get um, somewhere in Europe where he was actually, Genoa, I think, actually able to catch the boat to Buenos Aires and he was able... Is that a a key official in the Vatican Um, because there there was a bit of an unofficial um, escape route amongst some cardinals that were Nazi sympathisers. Yeah. uh, That's one of the... If um, his uh, life until then wasn't shocking enough that uh, someone like that was able to help him get into isolation... Yes, yeah, I was reading that as well. They definitely were helped because a lot of them did end up in in Buenos Aires. Obviously, at that time, Juan Perón, who wasn't a great person himself, uh, he he and obviously his wife is very famous, Ava Perón, but they were, you know, Nazi sympathisers as well, given the way they were governing their own country. And so they were not offered official asylum, but they were able to sort of stay there and, blend in with the crowd and Perron was fine with that. So, um, you know, he actually moved over there and he worked at Mercedes-Benz for a period of time. He had his fam- He was able to have his family with him. Uh, and then there was a Nazi expatriate journalist, William Willem Sasson, who had the intention of producing a biography. So Eichmann actually recorded a lot of tapes and transcripts and, ri- and handwritten notes. How and then be an exile like that and yet do something as officious as um, starting to record interviews. 
Yeah, ex- exactly. And those were eventually published in Life magazine and Stern magazine. So obviously as the Jewish population themselves tried to regroup uh, with the beginnings of Israel over in the Middle East and come together, there were several survivors of the Holocaust who were dedicated to finding Eichmann and the other Nazis who were hiding out around the world. And essentially they did manage to capture them and then bring uh, Eichmann back for uh, the Mossad agent. So Mossad is sort of like, you know, the... How would you describe Mossad? Is that is that's like the Israeli version of the FBI or something like that? And oh, they were well, actually CIA if they're um, operating overseas. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so the Mossad agents from Israel were able to track him down. They were also try uh, Joseph. I'm always say this name wrong. Menengle. Was is that how you say his name? The notorious. Well, we have to get a pronunciation dictionary if we do yes. many more um, <laughs> based in these areas. So the doctor that we mentioned before from Auschwitz who was conducting those horrible, disgusting experiments on people was also living in Buenos Aires at the time. So they actually went out to try and get him and then they were, were um, they decided not to pursue him in the end and then they went for Eichmann instead. So they managed to get him back to Israel uh, and then they put him on, on trial there. So, um, and he was found guilty of all of the above, thank God, so, and put to death. So, and I mean, at least at least he was found and brought to justice is what yeah, I would that's say. Yeah, that's the only, um, that's kind of the only uh, slice of aligning to his yes. story. Well, it's, you know, and because it was the early, it was 1961 when he was put on trial in Israel and you know, I mean, a lot of it was black and white, but some of it was colour. You're actually able to see this maniac sitting in the in the witness stand or sitting in the in the um, defendant's area and having to discuss these terrible things that he did. And there was no, you know, I'm sorry for what happened. There, it was just I was following orders, and that was oh. the extent of it. No, at at the very at the ve- at worst. Um, people likely people like these um, guys enjoy what they're doing out of sadism. At the very at the very best, they're in a complete delusional state about uh, their responsibility and what they're doing. I'm, I mean, it's like serial killers; they always feel themselves as a victim of circumstance. Yeah, exactly. So the trial was presided over by three judges. Uh, the prosecution presented their. Um, case over 56 days and it involved you know thousands of documents and many witnesses many holocaust survivors who came in physically and did testify uh and he did have a defense group from germany who ostensibly tried to defend him from the charges well i don't Uh, think any lawyer in israel would (laughs) no no um Except to get uh, close to him with a knife. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, some of the evidence that was submitted was by depositions made by the other Nazis who had already been put on trial in the Nuremberg trials. Um, and also that he had physically been in the places um, like Auschwitz and Chelmno as well, which were the main extermination camps, um, Sobibor, uh, Treblinka, 
a lot of them were in Poland too, yeah. and that he was visiting these places and he was definitely on site at the time that all the destruction was going on. Oh, yeah, he was a bureaucrat, but he was very much aware of the, the effects of his um, signature. That's right. So in 1961, the trial adjourned on the 14th of August and the verdict was read on the 12th of December and he was convicted on 15 counts of crimes against humanity, war crimes, crimes against the Jewish people and membership in a criminal organisation, which, of course, the Nazis were. Um, and then he wasn't actually guilty of killing anyone himself alone with his own hand, very much like Charles Manson, never actually physically claimed to, but he was never proven to have actually physically killed anybody. He was just the orchestrator of everything. Yeah. Um, but he was guilty of organising the exterminations, of deporting people, of, um, you know, uh, the dreadful conditions that a lot of these people lived in that led to their deaths. Um, and he was convicted for crimes against the Poles, the Slovenes and the Gypsies as well as the Jewish. Um, and then, so he did obviously try to appeal his sentence um, and he was eventually hanged at the Ramla prison on the 31st of May, 1st of June. It was at midnight 1962. So I'll just read what his um, last words were reported to be. Yeah. And then we'll finish up with our final thoughts. He said, long live Germany, long live Argentina, long live Austria. These are the three countries with which I have been most connected and which I will not forget. I greet my wife, my family and my friends. I am ready. We'll meet again soon. As is the fate of all men, I die believing in God. Um, and then the gentleman that was accompanying him to the hanging area um, heard him say, I hope that all of you will follow follow me, making those his actual final words. His body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in the Mediterranean Sea. Gee, lucky for him, hey? He gets his ashes scattered in the Mediterranean Sea, not so much for all of his victims. Um, to yeah. This, to this day, I'm sure there have been a lot of old people that would have been happy to do to his body what was done to Mussolini's. Yes, yes. Um, yes, I have seen those photos of Mussolini being strung up like that. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, he got out of it quite easily. He lived a pretty good life in Buenos Aires after the war um, and had more time in his life. And then, you know, justice was quite swift for him, really. And he was sort of afforded a much more of a noble ending than a lot of other people he was responsible for their deaths, were afforded. And then to have his ashes sc scattered in the beautiful Mediterranean Sea, gee, poor thing. Um, it just really, but it's really piqued my interest, Matt, just to see how all of these people, Himmler, um, Goebbels, all of these people fitted in with Hitler and how they managed to do what they did in this terrible time in history. But it just shows you when there's a vacuum and people are longing to believe in something or someone Someone can come along and tell you everything you want to hear and you will just go along with it no matter what the other things you're hearing about them are. Well, so an it's important quite thing sad. To, yeah. Well, an important thing to remember in um, Germany in the spring of the 1920s is that not even 20 years beforehand they had been uh, part of a strong autocratic monarchy and a very yes. successful one um, economically and everything because Germany in the early 1900s was like... A, one of the most uh, healthy economies and a good standard of living and everything. It was on. It was on the way up. 
Uh, even though um, they'd only been unified for a few decades, they were real Germany, although a lot of the politicians like to think of it as an ethnic uh, rise up, really it was like a fragile uh, coalition of different uh, little kingdoms. Mm-hmm. But when um, the World War One came crashing down, uh, it, it did mean that if uh, you had people in desperate situation brought about by a circumstance like the 1929 marker crash, uh, uh, poorly guided uh, government policies in Versailles, it, it did mean that there would have been um, like minimal, strong democratic apparatus. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't by a mass election that Hitler got in. He, he w- could always join a big crowd, but he was never um, uh, el- elected in the ballot box to, uh, to anything close to actual power. It was uh, b- by political machinations. Like, really, he was not a politician so, so much as more of, like, a, almost like a, a a drug gang master who just knew how to um create the motive for um uh, violence at the right time. Yeah, it's um, just everything that could have gone wrong went wrong over there at that time, I guess you can say. And it's just um, I'm really keen to actually do a lot more reading on exactly how all these people fitted together with him and how they were able to do what they did. And um, there's just, you know, really World War II, I mean, you could spend a lifetime studying the events of World War II and who did what and who said what and who did when somebody shot this person and all the rest of it. So, um, Matt, thank you for a very interesting discussion today and thanks to all of our listeners out there. It was was really, you know, I highly recommend – you know, watching some of these documentaries and stuff, there is a lot of information on Eichmann himself and all the other sort of main Nazi war criminals out there. And, of but course, there's just... Reliable sources. Don't just look at Wikipedia and... Yeah. Blogs. Look at... um, uh, Even go to your local library. Find an actual physical book. Um, uh, some, something that has uh, had a good editor pouring over it. Yeah. There's, and, too, there's um, too much... um, There's too much uh, sloppy research around. Yeah, and sometimes people now are trying to change sort of certain narratives to fit their own view of what history should be. So, yeah, make sure I know myself. I now try and find as many different sources of things from many different countries, um, you know, US, here, Europe, different parts of Europe, because it's important to get a different perspective on the events and every country will kind of interpret them a little bit differently as according to how their country was involved with these people. So, um, yes, but thank you everyone for joining us today for a glimpse of hell and we will, uh, Matt, is there anything you want to say in, in finishing up here? Well, we'll be back in about a month's time. I think that's our intended uh, Mm -hmm. sequence between episodes. Like we said at the beginning, uh, uh, it would be great if you can hit subscribe on either YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, so you can experience uh, our episodes in uh, any preferred way, uh, whether you like to watch it uh, directly or if you like to do it while driving or doing your ironing. <laughs> That's how I actually listen to a few good true crime podcasts while, and also um, testimony and confessions uh while i'm doing housework so uh, a lot of people who are interested in true crime will have it going and then other people are like are you crazy why on earth would you listen to that so <laughs> if you're interested in true crime you're interested in it so but thank you every- personal finance podcast can get a bit dull yeah that's right <laughs> thank you everyone for joining us um for a glimpse of hell and we will see you on the next one thanks everyone take care